I went to get my hair cut and the guy asked me, what do I do? And I nearly didn't say it. I just had this moment where I was like, you can't stand up on stage and say all this stuff about living boldly with HIV and then not say it in this environment. Meet Nathaniel Hall. Nathaniel is a writer, performer, actor and HIV positive activist. You'll have seen him on It's a Sin, the amazing drama by Russell T Davis. Nathaniel played lead character Rich's boyfriend, who was played by Ollie Alexander. Nathaniel's own award-winning show, The First Time, tells the story of how he contracted HIV after his first time. I'm Lisa Morton, the founder of Roland Dransfield PR, and welcome to We Built This City. This is the podcast that celebrates the Mancunians born, bred and adopted who put the heart into modern Manchester. Like Nathaniel, who's from Stockport, he has values and legacy in spades. He's done so much good by speaking out about his HIV positive status. I wanted to find out about the courage that he draws on to be an activist. What does it take to refuse to be ashamed? And how has refusing to be ashamed changed his life and changed his work too? I wanted to give you a trigger warning here because the upcoming chat does include a mention of suicidal thoughts. Nathaniel, thank you for joining me on We Built This City. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So you're a proud Mancunian born in Stockport and you're a proud activist and you're committed to raising awareness about living with HIV. And I've got to say that I've had so many people ask me to get you on this show and to talk about your work and your legacy and your purpose. And I got so fed up about people asking me and not getting to you <laughs> that it was serendipity because I was at the Vogue Ball at home ground in July, which was incredible. You were one of the judges. And I was with Carl Austin Byrne, who was, I know, was a friend of yours. And he said, I'll get him for you. So, and here you are a couple of weeks later. So thanks for joining me. <laughs> My reputation <laughs> precedes me. Totally, absolutely. <laughs> well, it does. And, and obviously, you know, a lot of people are talking about you now, um, certainly in Manchester after It's a Sin, which we'll come to. So first of all, can we talk about young Nathaniel? And what was it like growing up as a young boy in Stockport? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I always say I'm a proud Mancunian, but really my Stockfordian, aren't I? Yes. But <laughs> adopted Mancunian. <laughs> yeah. You know, I had a great, I had a really lovely childhood growing up in Stockport. I'm from Gatley, which is a nice leafy suburb. I'm from a lovely loving family. I've got two older brothers and a younger sister. I come from a huge family. Um, I'm one of 17 cousins, so we're a big family. So my prevailing memories of childhood, you know, were, I mean, it probably wasn't like this all the time, but like, you know, endless summer sports days at primary school and and family holidays camping in France and, and big family barbecues. So yeah, so my early life in Stockport was, was, was really lovely. And then I, I went on to um, secondary school. I was actually head boy at I my saw, secondary I was head school. Girl, I saw <laughs> that. Yeah, <laughs> high achievers from a young age. Well, actually, my brother was head boy as well. And there was this bit. He was. He's just a couple of years older than me. And there was always this bit of rivalry, and he did really well in his GCSEs as well. And then it was like I've got. I was this kind of friendly one-upmanship. Um, so, so yeah, we were both head boy actually at our wow, school. What a legacy there! I was a naughty head girl. They actually made me head girl when I was sixteen because they didn't fancy the look of anyone in the sixth form early on. They regretted the decision, I think. I think my public face of being head boy was probably acceptable, but what was going on behind closed doors, maybe not. (laughs) So let's talk about that. I mean, obviously, you came out to your parents when you were 16. So having such a loving, supportive family, did that make a big difference to you at the time? It did, but one of the things I try and get people to remember is we're going back to 2003 here, and it doesn't sound that long ago, but in terms of a sort of acceptance and equal rights for for gay people it could have it might as well have been a different era you know i grew up through the era of section 28 so that was repealed in 2003 which is year i left school and that meant schools couldn't talk openly about homosexuality being called gay or being bullied for being gay or perceived to being gay in my school was not picked up on in the same way that you would you know like if someone was throwing racist comments for instance it was just sort of swept under the carpet and then you think that i grew up in an era where there was no equal marriage no civil partnerships Um, adoption rights were much much harder for people who were not married the age of consent was only lowered a few years before I came out and there was no real 
long-term positive representation of, of gay people on telly and, and often gay people in the media or in the press were vilified quite a lot and we've just come out of the HIV and AIDS crisis which was obviously weaponised against the gay community so despite the fact that I came from a really loving and supportive family I knew they'd be loving and supportive of me being gay although I was terrified about coming out you had all that social context living in the closet at that age was terrifying and so I mean my mum told me I was gay which made <laughs> made it easier she sat me down and you know she suspected and we had a conversation about that in my later life I've now realized and look back with compassion at how actually challenging it was growing up gay around that time yeah and a very different experience would you say for young people growing up now I would hope so yeah, yeah. I don't think it's perfect Not by any all. means by any stretch of the imagination you know everyone's situation is different I was lucky enough to grow up near a big metropolitan city Manchester even back then you know is it has one of the largest LGBTQ populations in Europe it's a very LGBTQ friendly city I had that right on my doorstep so I was very lucky you know if you come if you're growing up in a small town or a small village still you know I think it can be really really difficult to to know that it's okay to be who you are I came out at at 16 and with a bit of a flourish um, but also sort of there was a bit of pushing back, I guess, against my kind of, what I say, my middle-class straight-A upbringing around that time as well. So almost the juxtaposition, as you say, of being a kind of white middle-class head boy. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, I always joke with people, you know, I, was, I wasn't I was out when I was head boy, but I was I was living up to my, my reputation with the deputy head boy, if you, if you get my gist. <laughs> okay, right. <laughs> in secret, uh, yeah. in my mum and dad's attic. You come round to watch Big Brother, but we didn't do much watching. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> and that's interesting you say about Manchester. So obviously, you know, there's a fantastic community here. Did you feel that that was support, if, even at 16, 17, did you become part of that family quite quickly yes I mean so I knew I was gay but there was it was just almost impossible to start a relationship with someone my age you know I talk about a joke about that you know that those liaisons with the deputy head boy but you know he didn't come out for years there was so much shame around it there was so much secrecy around it and so when I was 16 I, I met someone who was older than me uh, you know considerably older in the mid-20s who was everything that I knew I wanted to be with this like exam you know in Stockport as well you know like this exotic gay creature you know tanned bleached tips in their hair you know fashionably dressed and you know looked a little bit like Will Young who was obviously really big at the time so one pop idol the year before so that was really meeting him was my initiation into this sort of into gay culture I guess or you know coming down to Canal Street and kind of really exploring and realizing this whole world was here for people like me what a world we, we were used to be there every Friday night we never went anywhere else at all it was a, it was an amazing place to be and felt very much part of a family there and then you have this momentous diagnosis age only 17 can you describe to me what happened and how that felt at the time it was the day of my prom so a big day in, in kind of your life at that age um, and I'd wanted to go to the prom you know secretly desperately wanted to go with the deputy head boy you know make a statement but I don't think Cheadle in 2003 was ready for that so you know the next best thing of this kind of this knowing that this inner gayness in me wanted to burst out I had to make a statement when I arrived so I, I hired a cream tuxedo everyone else went in black you know so always different I've always dressed slightly flamboyantly and it not arrived at the hire shop and that's when I met this guy so I sat on a park bench in Stockport and you know he came over we chatted and we exchanged numbers and we went on this summer romance and you know I often say you know his my age the age difference wasn't a big issue to him but when I look back I go I think maybe it should have been at age 16 I didn't quite see it that way and we dated we we eventually I went back to his you know my rite of passage my first time and I remember him taking a safer sex pack out of the top drawer uh, which you get in bars around Manchester which have some condoms in and some lube and he just took the lube and put the condoms to one side and I sort of stopped him and said, you know, I think we should use condoms, but wasn't really skilled to have that conversation or have the self-confidence or the self-worth as a young gay person because I'd not had any sex education around that or any relationship education about how to navigate consent and all those sort of things. And so I just trusted him because he said he'd been tested, clean bill of health. And then it was in the, the same summer, later that summer, I was on holiday with my parents in Menorca and I got really, really sick violently sick we're talking both ends sick lost over a stone 
we didn't know it at the time, but that was my serial conversion. That was when uh, my body was recognising that there was HIV there and was fighting back. And then I, it was it was November that year, so it was actually it was actually was it late October? So it was two weeks before my seventeenth birthday. So I was still sixteen when I got the diagnosis that I was HIV positive. And were you on your own when you got that diagnosis? Yeah, I went. I took myself to the clinic in secret. Um, at that time, it was. The GUM clinic at Outpatients B at Stepping Hill Hospital. If anyone knows it, it's the mo- it's not the most welcoming of buildings. <laughs> um, as a as a sixteen year old, you know, I just started college. I was taking myself up there for appointments, and they had recognised potentially that I put myself at risk of HIV, and that potentially I had it. I wish, you know, the symptoms I was describing would suggest so, but um, I refused the test because it was an, at the time it was an opt in test, so they'd offer you a range of you know, a full sexual health screen and then ask you do you want a HIV test which added all this extra you know weight around HIV and you know I knew what HIV was and I kept refusing and eventually they said um, you know this sort of convinced me that I need to have the test and I did and I remember I did I went up after college on my own on the bus and it was the last appointment of the day and I was the last person called in and the lead nurse came over and she walked me all the way down the corridor. I'd never been to the end of the corridor, you know, been to all the other rooms, not the room at the end, which was the room with the two seats and a table and a box of tissues. And it was then that I knew what the result of the test was. Oh, that's just really <laughs> emotional to think about that. You think about your son being there on, your, on his own as well at that age. So when you were walking back down that corridor, had you decided that you were going to keep it a secret? At that point, I was on on my way home I remember sitting on the bus and thinking I had two options the one was to go in and you know sort of walk through walk into the kitchen go up to my mum to my parents and say I've messed up like this thing has happened Um, I need your help I'm a child I need you to be my parent Um, but you know me and my mum had had a conversation when I came out at 16 they knew about this guy they'd sort of said they're not the sort of parents that would tell me to call it off but they said that they weren't happy with it and that they they advised that I did and I did call it off you know early on in the summer we did have one lesson about being gay at school and it was a wildly out of date film about a gay man who was dying from HIV and was dying from AIDS um, you know and it was it was I remember sitting in that classroom watching that at the front knowing that I was this thing with all these eyes of people you know my classmates birding into the back of my neck because they all knew that I was this thing that I was different and sort of going oh that's my fate if I'm this thing so then when it happened after my first time which is just so unlucky that all the shame that I was unpicking about being gay was compounded by the shame and the stigma of HIV and so I just completely shut down and I just I went up to my bedroom um closed the door um and that night I actually lined up some paracetamol I mean I don't think I was ever going to do it I just watched too many episodes of Grange Hill you know <laughs> I like, you was know, ever the drama queen but at the time that's what it, it was big it was very very present and and I yeah I just boxed it up just went that's something that's happened you're an adult now get on with it and that's what I did and how do you think that affected you then going on because it was another 16 17 years before you told your parents it or was, any... yeah it was 15 years right. 15 years before I came out to my family with the news that I was HIV positive on the surface it continued you know I, I went to university I got good grades I travelled the world you know I'd always wanted to do that um, I was very fortunate and lucky to come from a family where that was you know, that was a possibility for me and I you know grabbed the ball by the horns and did that you know I went into relationships I did silly things you know streets across campus naked I did all the stuff that you would expect (laughs) but all the while there was this secret and there was this thing that was weighing me down and over time it got more and more heavy within me and what it started to do and I'd not realized is that it was starting to affect my mental health in ways that I wasn't noticing and I was becoming plagued with anxiety and that was exacerbated by some of the medication that was on unfortunately I started to become very paranoid I would be paranoid that people didn't like me anymore I would go to work and be physically sick because I thought I was going to get fired and then and then I throughout that time allowed people to treat me in ways that I shouldn't have done I should have had more self-respect and that was partly to be with you know the trauma of growing up gay in a, in a straight world and unpicking all that but partly because of this diagnosis as well and you know I, 
I now have a diagnosis of com- complex post-traumatic stress disorder and I've realised how that's impacted my life. Um, and then it got to 2017. I was in a really quite a toxic relationship. I was not addicted to, but definitely dependent on drugs and alcohol at that point in my life. Um, my life was very chaotic and I wasn't holding down my career in the way that I had hoped. And and uh, I just, I caught myself two days uh, still awake two days after a house party in the mirror and I just went I don't know who you are anymore and it was a real um, I think I I think I just just cried and cried and cried and cried and cried because I just didn't see any way out of the mess that I'd got myself into and that was the point where I went something has to change otherwise the other trajectory is very very dark so that's just that moment of realization so you what to save yourself I suppose in that moment yeah I think so and I think people you know ev- everyone has these moments in life you know whatever triggers it and we all we all face traumatic events in our lives and traumas um I always I think I'd always said to myself oh I've had mine I had it at 16 I'm fine I can get on with things and not realizing um I mean I was I never thought of myself as someone who would have a mental breakdown and I always thought a mental breakdown would be like a car crash and it was but it was in slow motion so the way I try and describe it to people is I could see my life falling apart almost like if you imagine you're in a film you know and the car's spinning round and everything's in slow motion and you can see it and I can I could see my relationship with my family pulling away and breaking apart and my relationships not working with people and losing friends and it just everything just sort of crumbling around me um that was the real wake up moment that was somebody's got to change here and i realized what it was because by keeping this thing a secret by not talking about my hiv i had bought into the narrative that it was something to be ashamed of which is the prevailing narrative around it and if i wasn't talking about it then it meant that i felt ashamed of it and i it was just a switch just turned in me and went well what happens if you talk about it <laughs> and go I'm not ashamed of it yeah. and it was as simple as that I've had a couple of times like that in my life you know kitchen floor moments when I thought I've been on this floor too long <laughs> <laughs> yeah. one was the floor one was on the stairs actually and what you said then I felt the same way I could see all those things in my life unraveling and when you see that it's the point at which you go no and speaking your truth changes everything doesn't it yeah absolutely I you know I talk about speaking truth to power or or speaking authentically living authentically um and it's it's a real sign of strength not weakness to be able to do that and to also turn around and say I'm going to need some help here every person needs needs a whole army around them of support from family to friends to partners to you know even support from charities and other organizations from your doctors and everything just having that strength to go uh, I'm I'm struggling here and I need support is is so important and it's having those relationships around you isn't it we we talk about relationships at Roland Dransfield and you, as you say you need an army of people and if people think you're invincible you obviously acting that you were invincible and hiding all that need for support for so long people can't help because they don't know how to help they don't know that you need help and it's so liberating isn't it when you show your vulnerability yeah, absolutely. You're totally right. I think in, when you say that you you build an armour um, and, you know, I look back at my younger self and, he, you know, my younger self was still confident and I still, on the surface, <laughs> underneath, you know, it's like a swan. It was like the legs were going ten to the dozen on the, on the surface looking very graceful and people obviously say, oh God, you look like you've got it so together. And actually I didn't. And now I allow myself some of the vulnerabilities and those other sides of me to show through and to shine through and to ex- to acknowledge when I'm struggling you know in the team the theatre company that I run within my team you know we're really open and honest if I I suffer from like I said from PTSD sometimes that means I have days where I disassociate or if I'm overstressed and stimulated and now I just say that to them yeah. and they understand and um, you know they pick up the pick up the slack when I'm not feeling great, and vice versa. And it means that the team works in a much better way. So tell me about that. How did you get into acting? And then tell me about Dibby Theatre. I love the name. <laughs> so I got into acting. Well, well, I was in my mum's womb actually. So my mum was in a play when she was pregnant <laughs> oh. with me. She was into it. I'm Mr. Dramatics. And then I 
joined that amateur theatre company when I was younger and kind of really got the bug. I was did all the school productions and then I studied theatre at, at university. I'd always knew that's sort of what I wanted to do. I guess what sort of happened is, I mean, it's it's the hardest gig in the world. Like mm. when people say to me, what advice do you have if I want to be an actor? I'm like, just don't, <laughs> just don't, because it is not an easy life. But I, as I grew older and I was going through all this other stuff, the acting stuff sort of fell by the wayside a little bit. And I used to think that I'd go, to, I'd go to auditions and I'd crumble. And I was like, I know I can do this. I know I can do it. But I realise now, looking back, that I wasn't just... I didn't just have nerves. Nerves are great. Nerves can be used in a positive way. Mm. I was... I had anxiety. Like, I was... My body was almost sabotaging these moments. So I look back with compassion about that those moments. But I, I carried on. I worked for some of the theatre companies. I worked in different roles. I was working in marketing, and I was sort of supporting with directing. And it was when, when I had the, the, the breakdown in 2017, I was like, well... I've, I've been making shows with other people about telling their own stories and being authentic. I'd made this amazing show with a group of young people at Contact in Manchester um, about sex and sexuality. So it was with the young, their young company. And they were so bold and so brave with what they brought to that. And I was like, I need to take some of my own medicine here. <laughs> like, you know, I'm asking kids to do this in a sense. And they're being braver than I am. And so I just went, okay, why didn't you make a show about yourself? In fact, that's what forced my hand to tell my family because the ball was in motion. I got a commission to make the show and I was like, well, I have to tell them now. And what happened, something really magic happened in that moment because all the anxieties and pressures that I had on myself all went. I mean, there was different anxieties and pressures, but it was kind of an all or nothing moment. All those criticisms, those artistic criticisms, you know, the, the thing in your head that says when you've written something, oh, that's not good enough or people won't like that that all went because I was like it was all or nothing I was like I'm going to throw everything into this thing professionally personally and if it doesn't go well I'll I'll wave my white flag I'll go down with the ship and I'll choose a different career you know I'll go into chefing or accountant or whatever you know go into a different job and it was that 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 made it what it was because there was a real fearlessness going into it and I think that's what people say about my show first time and we did it in 2018 in at Waterside in Sale uh, that was the premiere around World AIDS Day um, and it was much to my surprise it just went phenomenally we had to put extra shows on I was on the BBC Breakfast Couch with Charlie and Naga it, it just yeah and that really started a, a snowball effect in me getting back into the swing of the career that I knew I always wanted to do And do you feel that that triggers that Acceptance in a way because it was so massively received, wasn't it? You, the play, and you've you've toured with it, haven't you? Extensively, you've got new dates coming up. Yeah, I think so. I think the the show itself is is so. I mean, it's it's, it's very funny. I mean, you want to make sure that you, you come come to the theatre, you're going to have a good time as well. That's really important to me as an artist. But it's it really is warts and all, and it's very confessional. And I remember when I was writing it and. Chris Hoyle, who I run my theatre company with and who directed the show and helped with the dramaturgy, which loosely translates as the writer's friend when you're writing. I was putting things in and he was like, you know, your parents are going to come see this show, you know, and it's like th there was some real stark stuff in there. Um, and I was like, no, I think it needs to be because for so long I was hiding all these things away. And, you know, the older the get you get, the more you realise that your parents have all these secrets as well, you know. <laughs> yes. You know, everyone does. And you develop a new relationship with them where you can talk about those things. And this play really helped me do that. But I think it's that authenticity that people connect to. And even if you're not, if you don't live with HIV, the show really is about shame. And it's about, we all carry shame in our lives. And it's, and I think it's really helping it's helped a lot of people to address where shame is in their life and how it's controlling them. And I do, I get messages after shows, I get countless messages all from people reading articles about the show or about my story saying that it's really inspired them to talk to their parents about something they've been keeping secret. Or I had one person message me saying they were in a, an abusive relationship and it spurred them on to get their things together and move out, you know. And, and so I think when people see that you've been, if you've been through some stuff... And, you've, and you can show that vulnerability. There's a real strength in that that inspires other people. That's so wonderful to, to know that you're supporting so many people and perhaps that they don't have to go through that same trauma that you went through. 
And just talking about your parents, you say that relationships shifted. I mean, they've obviously been very supportive. And I think, did you write letters to them, first of all, to let them know about your diagnosis? I did, yeah. So, I mean, I've got, like I said before, I've got three siblings and two parents. So, like, you know, that would be four times going to tell this thing. And I was like, I just don't think I can do it emotionally, go through that. So uh, I set myself the task of writing it all down in a letter and that when I'd written it I felt very calm so I just posted it out to everyone and then that meant as well that their initial reaction which you sometimes even if you love someone you can't control your initial reaction whether that's anger or hurt or upset or whatever it meant I didn't need to witness that which protected me and my mental well-being and my emotional well-being because I didn't need to witness those reactions once they had that reaction and they they could process it then we could come together and talk and we did you know my mum turned up on my on my doorstep two days later with a house plant and I was like what have you brought a house plant for she's <laughs> like I was, wond- she said, I was wondering about, wondering around Tesco I went to buy you something and that was I bought this house plant um, <laughs> which is a slightly bizarre moment in my life um, but yeah they they were you know really supportive I wouldn't say that it was all of a sudden we were talking about HIV at the dinner table but what the show then did which was very difficult for them my whole family to sit through and watch was kind of a bit of family therapy because it allowed you know other things within the family to come to the surface and it allowed us to talk more openly about stuff because we're a really loving close family but we're not the sort of family that sits and talks you know about uh, you know our own problems or or emotions that much so it was it was nice to be able to have that and my mum said actually after the first show that my dad had not held a hand for that long <laughs> in ages and then and then they came to see the show again when we took it to the Edinburgh Fringe and my mum they sat on the front row and my mum started crying right at the start and I was like this is the funny bit like don't cry at the funny bit I was like why <laughs> I was like why are you putting yourself through it and she's like I don't know I was like don't you don't need to come again don't worry I know you love and support what I'm doing <laughs> Oh, how did you find that when you're in the middle of that and your mum's sobbing on the front you just, row? You just have to sort of <laughs> yeah, like block it out. Sounds. Yeah, they're not there. Yeah, they just just imagine they're not there. <laughs> and so you're selling the scripts, are you, at the moment? The yeah, text. yeah. So the play was on tour. We went, to, we went to the Edinburgh Fringe in 2019. It did very well there. It won two awards. Amazing. It was incredible. Yeah. And then we were on a UK tour before Miss Rona came on the scene and interrupted everyone's lives, which is rude. So what we try to do is keep the momentum going because we knew the show was going to go back on tour when it could and it is it's coming back in the autumn and then next spring as well but we want to keep that momentum so we got the the, the playtext published by Nick Hearn Books um, which is available to buy on my website or on Nick Hearn Books website and then we I set up an outreach engagement project called um, In Equal Parts which was working with a whole range of different groups and organisations to sort of really tackle HIV stigma and shame um, and really unpick that and get there's some key public health messages around HIV that I'm now supporting lots of charities to get out Um, the first one is you equals you undetectable equals untransmissible which means people like me who are on effective medication can't pass the virus on which is a miracle of modern science you know 2016 when that news was coming out revolutionised the lives of people like me I lived all my adult life in my mind and I always say this in inverted commas thinking that I was infectious and I was I could pass this thing on and now we know 100% if I'm on my medication my viral load is undetectable I cannot pass it on I can have unprotected sex with my partner and confidently know that so that's incredible also that PrEP pre-exposure prophylaxis is a drug that people can take preemptively if they're at risk of HIV you know people always say you know use a condom and the condoms are great and they're effective but some people won't use them and it's important that people know that PrEP is available on the NHS you take that pill um, if you're having unprotected sex and it it reduces your risk of contracting HIV and just the get tested message regular testing is so important because we're now the government has committed to ending all new transmissions of HIV by 2030 so we've got like, like nine years on the clock um, so the, the the show was kind of pushing those messages and while we were, weren't able to tour we created this this creative outreach programme that's helping to get those messages into school we've made some short films which are going to be shown across Greater Manchester in the autumn and sort of working with other people with HIV to really support them to become comfortable to live openly and, and boldly with their with their diagnosis 
I've read that you've said that you almost feel guilt sometimes in the fact that you can live your life as a proud gay man now in a safe way when obviously so many people that you were growing up with couldn't do that. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, there was a real moment, a real shift in my journey and my perspective and I remember it very clearly in 2012 I was asked by the charity George House Trust um, I'd written a letter to my 16 year old self so despite the fact that I wasn't actually out to my family and stuff I was still I was going out with their positively speaking program and speaking to school groups mainly and reading this letter to my 16 year old self and they said oh could we that letter would be amazing at the Candlelight Vigil at Manchester Pride. So for people that don't know, that's 5,000 people in Sackville Gardens on the last day of Pride come together in the evening and there is a moment where we remember people lost to HIV and AIDS or people that we've lost from our community in the last year. And it's a really beautiful event. And they said, oh, could you read your letter? And I was just like, absolutely not, because I'm not <laughs> I'm not open about this thing. I can't stand up in front of 5,000 people. But it was read... It ended up being read by an actor and I remember sitting or standing at the front watching this happen and hearing the reaction of the crowd to my letter and just having this real moment of going, I'm one of the lucky ones. Like HIV and AIDS has killed 35 million people worldwide. I'm so lucky to be alive. And it just, again, it was one of those moments that went, I've got to make every day count. You know, I do sometimes joke, I'm on borrowed time. Like, without medication, I can tell you now, I wouldn't be alive. I wouldn't be sat in front of you today. You know, I've lived with it for 18 years and that would be very, very few people live long term with untreated HIV. So, so yeah, it was that really that made me go make it count. And I guess I'd never really thought about survivor's guilt in terms of HIV. But I think it is a thing that lots of other people with HIV that I talk to, particularly those that maybe have diagnosed even earlier than me, mm and who lived through the early part of the AIDS epidemic and lost lovers and friends certainly might feel that stronger than I do as well. So when you were first diagnosed, you were given a life expectancy of... Did you know what that was at the time? Yes. I mean, 2003 was... So effective combination therapy medication came in about 1996 so up until that point there was some experimental treatments and stuff but mostly if you've got a diagnosis you've got a couple of years you know max I was a few about seven years into the advocate of medication but I was still told that my life expectancy was shorter probably about I'd have about 35 years prognosis so I was you know getting into my 50s maybe so to hear that at 16 was was really really traumatic but um that very very quickly changed you know I was I was right on a transitional moment as medications were improving we were going down from handful of handfuls of pills down to three to two to now one one pill a day very few side effects and so I was really in this transitional period for HIV I think. Is it still a stigmatised would you say? Absolutely I think it's the most stigmatised illness in the world and that is related to how it's caught, how it's transmitted, you know, so it's transmitted through sex, it's more easily transmitted through male-to-male anal sex, and so at a time in the 1980s when gay men were marked and vilified and still seen as maybe a danger to society in in some way, it was very easy to weaponise HIV. Let's say, you know, it was if you're religious it was God's punishment you know all these things the other ways that it's transmitted is intravenously and then if you know it's very rare for vertical transmission which is mother to baby in the UK now but I've know people who mothers who have passed it to babies and I know young people who live with HIV who've got it from the mother and there's a whole shame around why didn't you look after your baby properly you know you're an irresponsible mother all these things for me I can't think of any other illness that you could tell someone you have and get the reaction that you do which might be cold judgmental you know lose friends lose family over which happens you know I'm very lucky that my friends and family are supportive many people don't have that if you tell someone you have cancer it's you get all oh, so their, much empathy I think the yeah. only other illnesses I can think of are maybe mental illnesses that are treated in a similar way and like I said earlier I realized that I was buying into that that it was a shameful thing and I was like why can't I get 
in a taxi and tell my taxi driver I'm going to the hospital to have my blood taken for my HIV? Why can't I sit and have me have my hair done and talk openly about it? And I remember actually after I'd, the first we'd done the first four shows, the premiere, I'd been through this media whirlwind. I'd been you know, Buzzfeed News, like BBC BBC News, BBC Breakfast on the breakfast couch with Charlie and Nagger, you know, just this complete whirlwind. And then I went to get my hair cut the week after, and I sat in the barber's chair. In a kind of kind of macho barbers, you know that environment. As a gay man, you always feel a little bit on edge and anxious. And the guy asked me, "What do I do?" And I nearly didn't say it. And I was I just had this moment where I was like, "You can't stand up on stage and speak to BuzzFeed News and Charlie and Nagger and say all this stuff about living boldly with HIV and then not say it in this environment." That's really the cold face of activism. That's where you change one person's attitude because they've met someone and you're a nice human being that they're chatting to and so that was probably that was an even bigger step to be able to just say oh I live with HIV and I do this thing and I've made a show about it and yeah a real moment in time there like you say <laughs> yeah. you know it's that you, you've done all those really kind of massive brave things on those platforms and it's just sitting in that barber's chair which is was that moment for you what was the reaction oh you know supportive and he <laughs> yeah. was amazed he was like oh my god you know he wanted to find out more and you know and he'd been on the breakfast couch you know there's a hint of the celebrity and all that sort of stuff and people want to find out more but I think being on stage I've got friends who make solo work as well in the same so my show is a solo show it's just me on stage and I often say there's real safety in the spotlight it's actually easier to stand in that spotlight with darkness around you and say things that you wouldn't say in everyday life and actually for me one of the things I've really pushed and challenged myself to do is to live by those values and live by the things that I say and that I hold true and not that that not just be a public version of Nathaniel that really be a lived version of me as well oh, I love that we'll talk about values in a minute so first of all talking about something that has probably brought so much focus to people who had to live with HIV and the shame around it is it's a sin and if anyone's listening to this and hasn't seen it, then this was a non-COVID, you must be in a non-COVID parallel world because it got us through some very dark months. I think the whole of the UK fell in love with it and cried along with it. And my mum is still saying, la, <laughs> all the time, which is driving us insane. And you played Donald Bassett, the boyfriend of Ollie Alexander's character, Richie Tozer. How did that come about? Well, so what happened was I'd made my show first time in late 2018 and I had heard on the grapevine because uh, Russell split Russell T Davis who wrote it mm. splits his time between his home in Wales and Manchester because yeah. uh, most of the productions that he works on are filmed here. So I'd heard on the grapevine this thing was going on. My agent had heard we were talking about it and we we're like, we need to get you seen for this thing. You know, we need to. And a friend of Russell's came to see my show and had messaged him and said you need to go and see this boy's show because at that time Russell was writing It's a Sin, which was actually called Boys back then. It had a different name. And he unfortunately couldn't come to see the show. And this friend of his messaged me and said, you've got to, you've, you need to meet, you need to meet. And he was trying to make it happen. And I eventually I went to an event at the Royal Exchange that Russell was speaking at, mm. hoping that I could yeah. catch him afterwards and say, and then there was just so many people wanting, you know, photographs and autographs and all that sort of stuff. I just didn't get around to it. So I was so unprofessional and I do not recommend this to anyone. But I just sent him a message on Instagram <laughs> in the hope that he got it. And I just said, I know you're writing this thing about HIV. I've lived with it since I was 16. I've made this show about it. Do you want to chat? And I expected no reply. And he replied straight away and was like, let's go for a coffee. So I met with one of, you know, I'm a queerest folk was a, a gay mm -hmm. awakening for yeah. me. You know? yeah. um, we, you know, we met on Cross Street in a coffee shop and I was sat for two hours in front of one of my absolute heroes. Wow. And he was so generous with his time. He wanted to hear my story. He was telling me that he was writing a character um, that was that got it from their first time and he was trying to get a sense of if he was pitching that right um, that's obviously the, the, the character of Colin Morris-Jones and then at the end of the conversation sort of went well look all the central characters in this you're too old to play but there might be a role for you and then kind of left it at that and I, I didn't hear anything and then before my show went back on went to the Edinburgh Fringe we did one preview show here in Manchester and Phil Collinson who's the producer of It's a Sin came and I found out just before I went on stage and I was like oh my gosh oh my oh, gosh wow. you're baffed for award winning <laughs> producer of the audience but he came to me after the show he was introduced himself he was like 
we want you to audition. You have an audition secured. I mean, I had to audition like everyone else. It wasn't just given to me on a play. I did a self-tape audition and that was sent off and I auditioned for the part of Gregory, Gloria and for the part of Donald. And um, yeah, I found out when I was in Edinburgh. In fact, I found out I just came out of a show. I just got five-star review for my show in the stage and then my agent called me and said, you've got a role. Amazing. I've got goosebumps. <laughs> yeah, honestly, I think that was probably one of the best days of my life. So. Amazing. And what was it like to work with that cast? Because the cast just, they were just joyous, weren't they? I mean, you too. I mean, it was just incredible, the energy that you had together. <clears throat> yeah, it was. And really, what Russell does really well is br- often brings in new faces that apart from Ollie and and Lydia West, who's been in previous productions and been in years and years. The other actors are relatively unknown in the television world, and that's that's a real risk, particularly Mm. for leading characters. But um, just chose, you know, they were cast so well. The atmosphere on set was fantastic. Red Productions is an amazing company to work for, but also all the gay characters played by gay people, Mm. and that for me is really important it fostered a real sense people don't understand TV and film sets are actually quite macho environments they think you know we think the arts is kind of all really accepting but actually gay people uh, you know LGBTQ people in general can often not feel very welcome in those environments but that was a total exception everyone felt so comfortable and you get such wonderful joyous performances when particularly when gay men can feel that they can just be themselves yeah. and express themselves in the way that they want to yeah and just a total honor and like a real pinch me moment you know to be working on that production yeah it was literally after every show everyone was on the phone to each other and it was my mum was so proud because she'd found it first and she said you got to see it and it kept it kept her smiling and laughing and she well she's watched it a few times now did you expect that reaction did you did you kind of know when you were filming that he was going to get that kind of response um when we did the read through or i'd read the script prior to the read through and then we went to do the table read with everyone around the table and you sort of met the the people that were playing the characters and you could see them come to life and i was like this is good i mean in russell t davis production you always know it's going to be good But, you know, often I thought it would have a a profound impact in the LGBT community. I think that's where I really thought this will be really well received. We haven't had a drama on British television that focuses on the experience of gay men in the HIV and AIDS Mm -hmm. crisis. There's plenty of films from Europe and from America and there's lots of plays, but nothing on primetime television that tells this story. And for lots of lots of gay men that I know, older gay men, I was like, this is going to be very validating to see their stories on screen in a non-judgmental way so we knew that but had no idea that it would I mean I was it was like six or seven weeks after the first the first episode had aired and still on the radio I'd switch the radio one and there'd be someone else talking about <laughs> someone else talking about it um, I mean I was the only openly HIV positive member of the cast and I went into a, a new relationship last year and it's when this is when I really fell in love with my boyfriend because he had he had to manage my inbox there was that many <laughs> requests and he made this beautiful spreadsheet and we had meetings every day and I was like I didn't know a spreadsheet could be sexy but here we are <laughs> I want a boyfriend that can do spreadsheets. I can't do spreadsheets. <laughs> Me neither. I'm hopeless with them. <laughs> we all need someone like that in our lives. And what impact do you think it's had on breaking down barriers? Actually, one of the things I was actually worried about with it was that it's a historical representation of HIV and AIDS. Mm. So we do see the yeah. the tragedy of, of the early part of the epidemic with, with people dying really horrific deaths mm. and also their their lives not being sort of respected and honoured in the way that they want their families keeping that a secret or mm. not allowing their lovers to be part of the funeral you know and yeah. those really really awful gut-wrenching mm. stories um, and then also scenes of people like washing cups or scrubbing themselves in the shower and I was like I, you know I've been I've been a HIV activist for sort of like 10 15 years going oh my god all the work that we've been doing oh to tell people like HIV has changed and you know you can't catch it from sharing a cup and all that's like that is all going to be undone by this one program but actually what what happened was you know the amazing HIV charities Terence Higgins Trust in London and the South and George House Trust up here in Manchester and, and many many others and lots of individual activists sort of just jumped on this moment and went we've got a captive audience the the uk was talking about hiv in a way that they haven't since the 1980s okay. and it was a real moment to go we can re-educate people and so you know i was thrilled to be watching news reports and 
seeing articles in like even you know in cosmopolitan and vogue and in publications that might not talk about these things talking about all that stuff i mentioned before u equals u prep how to get tested there was an upsurge hiv testing week is normally in november but it was moved to february because of the pandemic which is when uh, it's a sin came yeah. out and there was a huge upsurge in people booking home testing mm. so there was a real direct impact yeah. of that and i really think it's helped galvanize this march that we're on to end new transmissions by 2030 that's fantastic and i think also one thing that people were talking about is they can't they'd forgotten about section 28 and the fact that that was a thing they were going through education at that time and it was so, you know actually so recently in actual yeah. fact yeah section 28 is a really interesting thing i think because it was never really enacted no one was ever prosecuted mm. or anything it was never pulled up but what it did and what it shows is the power of legislation to create a culture of fear, fear yeah. around something and it's this idea that you can almost stop a whole nation from talking about something through fear and that's what it did it was it was you know we talk about project fear you hear that sometimes and it really was it just meant that young lgbtq people did not get the right support that they need growing up in schools and so growing up in that era meant that for people like me just you know even if just down the road was the the amazing world of canal street mm. In Cheadle, it could have, it might as well have been the Outer Hebrides. It didn't yeah. matter. Yeah. It meant that teachers felt fearful to talk about these things. They didn't feel equipped. They didn't have the right training, and um, and so, and what that meant was, I, I think we're only just acknowledging now the impact that's having um, on my generation yeah. um, of LGBTQ people and how we now are working so hard to make sure the next generation don't suffer the same trauma. Yeah, absolutely. We just talked about the values that you kind of live every day by, which is speaking your truth. And what's important to you now? How do you feel given that you had to keep that truth to yourself so long? How does that impact how you live every day now? I think it is about that. It's about just being honest with people and being honest with yourself and just having that conversation. You know, I lived in, I had a number of previous relationships that were very codependent very sort of lots of trauma bonding going on and with my new new boyfriend thankfully we've both lived a life and we've both done a bit of work on ourselves we've both done a bit of counselling <laughs> done that stuff and really talk very openly with one another about what we're feeling about what we're thinking um, and keeping a check on how our relationship is developing and growing but I think in terms of like my attitude to life and to work and career I always have Kathy Burke in the back of my head one of my favourite people <laughs> in the world and I can't say the full thing because it's got a very rude word in it but she says turn up on time make sure your breath don't stink and try not to be a <laughs> you can't say the word <laughs> starts with a C yeah. <laughs> and it's so <laughs> yeah. it's so true though yeah, it's like it it's, so it's not hard there are a lot of egos in the industry that I work in mm. and I have an ego we all have an ego like ego is really important if we talk about ego as a bad thing but if you understand your own ego yeah. it can be used people who, who are confident and put themselves out there just actually understand their own ego and actually being nice being genuinely interested in other people and giving them your time works magic i mean i one of my approaches to making art and making work is i do a lot of community-based work and often that can be an artist sort of like flies into a community and he's like i'm an artist i know all these things does this thing and then disappears whereas for me it's about fostering long-term relationships meaningful even if it's just with three or four mm -hmm. people and just allowing them to grow and develop and learn from them i learn so much from people that say they're not creative and you know they're all of a sudden throwing out ideas that i've never even thought about so giving other people your time and energy is a value that i really keep close to me mm. and you get so much back don't you from putting that that in the rewards are incredible even if they're not immediate they yeah. always you know yeah. they, they do come back so kathy burke's value reminds me of one of ours no dickheads in actual fact <laughs> but yeah, so what, which of ours are any of you, that ours that kind of really stood out for you i like um keep it real and i love admit it fix it move on mm. i think like that's not about making apologies either we all make mistakes i often say to my team or i work with lots of teams across the country for Tory work and you know sometimes balls get dropped you know we're spinning lots of plates the arts is massively underfunded you know i'm working so many different projects at one time 
for very little money often things get missed and it's not about like going it was your fault or your fault it's just to go okay we we acknowledge something went wrong here let's have a look at what went wrong and let's try and make it better in the future mm-hmm. and i think the other thing is sort of walk a mile in another's shoes and i was I sort of alluded to that a little bit before but this idea of i think sometimes in in our work life we feel that we need to put everything that's in our personal life and close it off and be this thing in work and particularly over the last year where a lot of us have been working from home that boundary has been blurred even more and I think it's really important to to be open and be honest and have compassion for one another because at the end of the day like work is work and it can bring loads of fulfillment and enjoyment and obviously we need it to earn money but it's just work and I say particularly to lots of young actors or artists or theatre makers I'm like don't sacrifice your life for this Mm. job Mm. because your life is more important Mm. this job and having a fulfilling life and there are many talented people out there who don't make it in this industry so don't don't give up everything yeah you know it's it's so important to have a fulfilled life outside of it yeah very, and I think, we've, as you say, we've seen that so much, haven't we, in the past 18 months or so. It's interesting, when I started my career, my boss said to me, leave your shit at the door. <laughs> <laughs> and so, in the 90s, you know, you like you just would not, we're now, we're like, bring your whole self to work. Yeah. We're here to support, we understand yeah. that you're going through those things. And bring the human in, don't bring half yourself through the door, bring yourself to work, and that's really important. Yeah, absolutely, I, I remember doing some training with a team I was working with a while ago and it was mental health training and one of the things that we sort of took away from it was like sometimes you turn up to work and you're in a foul mood mm-hmm. that's all right you're not a robot exactly. but just communicate it and yeah. just go I'm in a really bad mood yeah. <laughs> don't know why or you can tell why and then go I'm going to need two hours on my own doing some work no one no one disturbed yeah. me and then when you're feeling more human yeah. you come back into the room and it's like you you get more done you, you're, you're more productive as a team and support don't yeah. you I mean people will then come make you brew or whatever but if you if you it's that vulnerability again yeah. isn't it yeah. you know which we've, yeah. we've felt so long we've not been allowed to show at work for sure so we talk about legacy at Roland Transfield you've done that in spades with all your work around HIV awareness and combating stigma Ultimately, what would you want your legacy to be? I know it's a big question. Wow, <laughs> <laughs> um, wow, that is a big question. Um, I think for me, being in It's a Sim was amazing, and you know, it has increased my profile rapidly. You know, I sat with giddy excitement watching my social media following just going up and up and up and up and <laughs> yeah. up, and that has opened doors for me as well in terms of you know being able to charge people to use my social media, and that's great because I work in an industry where honestly. I've had to move back in with my parents because I don't earn a lot of money. You know, I think people see you've been on telly and think it's all glam. But I'm not really that bothered about pursuing. I will continue. I've got an agent. You know, I'm going for auditions. I'm putting myself out there. I'm creating a new show. For me, though, if It's a Sin is the pinnacle of what I do on television, I'm happy. Like, I'm not seeking fame and fortune for fame and fortune's sake because it, it doesn't drive me it doesn't get me up in the morning in fact it fills me with anxiety mostly <laughs> so, <laughs> so so for me the legacy would be with, you know with my theatre company Dibby Theatre that I run with my friend Chris Hoyle and producer Ross Carey we talk about creating a legacy of, of LGBTQ artists and writers in the city we don't feel that Manchester has a programme for new writers LGBTQ writers so we've set up a school for LGBTQ writers called First Dibs which we've got five amazing new playwrights who are working on going the 14 week course and yeah I think for me it's about how can I invest my time and energy and my skills and expertise as a a writer a producer a creative to you know look back when I'm old in my 80s and go the arts landscape in Manchester has changed and we were part of that and I think for me that's that's what I would like to see as as my legacy as Dibby's legacy that's wonderful Dibby's legacy in terms of just we talked about relationships how Manchester's a very supportive place isn't it we talked about obviously um and the LGBT community obviously fantastic but what conjures up in your mind when you think about Manchester in terms of that Manchester family and support for you for your career and everything as, as you've gone on um it's it's interesting because I you know there's a thing within my career path that you you do your degree or you go to a drama school 
And then you move to London. Mm. You know, London has an incredible theatre scene. It's just off the scale. And Manchester has a great theatre scene, but it's no way near. You know, there's, I mean, uh, there's so many theatres in London and there's just this expectation that you do that. And I never really wanted to. I never really took to London. It's a great place to visit as a tourist. It's a great place to go do some work. But I just say my favourite thing is getting back on that train. So many people say that. Because <laughs> it's just, it's, it's, a, it's a pace of life that I can't handle. And what I love about Manchester is that it's a big, busy, industrial city. It's not the prettiest of cities. It's dirty and grimy and it's got its problems, as every city does. But you can escape quickly from Manchester. You're t- 20, 30 minutes and you're in the Peak District. You know, from where I live, it's even shorter. And for me, that's really important to be able to to, to get out and remember that there's more to life than what's in this city. Um, but I think the city is is a, a city of innovators. It really is. Like we do, you know, we do the, the phrase, we do things differently here, mm. you know, and we do, we do do things differently here. We do it in our own way um, <clears throat> and our own way is different and messy. And yeah, I, do, I just always feel like I, I can walk the streets of Manchester and I feel this is home. Mm. I feel like the people are my people. And Manchester is a city that I feel comfortable walking around holding my boyfriend's hand, away, even away from Canal Street. And that's really important to me. Yeah. That's so true. And a lot of people, that word are, everyone, you know, it's 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 our Manchester, it's our city, isn't it? Yeah. And I think that sense of, of ownership and belonging is really important. That's I went to London for my first job. I got, after university, on the, the old milk ground that you did, and I got a job in an advertising agency. Went for the induction. It was in 1990, I think. And I was like, not a chance. <laughs> they were all smoking Marlboro menthol. There were no flat vowels, and I just I can't do it. My mum was disgusted, and I and I came my first job in Salford Crescent, earning about a quarter of what I was offered in London. But you know, hey, it's worked for me and, and lots of other people. Segue into our quick fire. Oh, so <laughs> okay, and this is a, this is maybe a difficult one. Favorite space to perform in Manchester? Oh, favorite space to perform in Manchester has to be Contact. Mm-hmm. It's where I cut my teeth. I was in their young company, and um, my show first time is back there in the autumn for a week. So I can't wait. I'm on. I'm on the main stage, and it's a beautiful theatre. On what date? So that's on the 29th or the 30th of November to the 4th of December. Right. Well, we'll be there for sure. Best thing to come out of Manchester? Best things to come out of Manchester, Vimto. <laughs> Love a bit of hot Vimto when I was ill. Reminds me of my grandma because she used to give me hot Vimto. We had that. My grandma gave us that too. What do you order at the chippy? I'm a vegetarian, so it would be chips and gravy or chips and curry sauce. Absolutely. What about cheese and onion pie? I'm not a big fan of... No. Sometimes they're a bit soggy. Yeah. <laughs> I like my pastry crisp. <laughs> Definitely not crisp in the chippy. The place that you feel most connected to in the city? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, I think I feel really connected and safe when I'm dancing in some of the city's underground establishment shall we say <laughs> so went out clubbing recently Homo Electric which is at Hidden which is just on the edge of the city it's an old warehouse yeah. you know it's not glam at all but it, it's a place with lots of LGBTQ people and just feel like you can be yourself 100% and let your hair down and have a good night amazing and it's so good to be able to go and do that again isn't it it is yeah and a mank in three words uh, hard soft up for a laugh that's more than three I love that hard on soft that's so true I really understand that Um, how can we find you how can anyone listening kind of find your work online so if they want to find Dibby Theatre that's dibbytheatre.org or at Dibby Theatre on Twitter and Instagram my website is nathanieljhall.co.uk and I'm at nathanieljhall on Twitter and Instagram amazing thank you so just lastly I mean you've had to dig deep to find courage in your life and you felt very alone in that time what would you say to anybody listening to this who feels shame for whatever reason and who's unable to reach out for support I think reminding yourself that it's so difficult when you feel isolated Mm. but reminding yourself that you're not the first human to have lived (laughs) and the human experience for the most part is very similar for everyone and so what you're feeling and going through almost probably everyone that you know in your life has done or will do so you'd be surprised that when you make that first connection to speak to someone or ask for help or um, reach out that actually the response you get often is not the one that you're fearing Mm. Um, so 
I always say, if you can't say it out loud, write it down, pass it on to someone, send a message, um, just make that first step and get that ball rolling. Um, and also commit as well. Commit. You are you. Commit to doing the work. Like we're all, we're all going to go through trauma in our lives um, and it, we all have a responsibility to not let that impact on other people in our lives so do the work invest in yourself you know I've got friends who are like I can't have counselling because it's too expensive I'm like I know how much you spend on a night out <laughs> so you can afford 50 quid a week for counselling you know invest in yourself that's so true isn't it sometimes people don't take that responsibility and you're right you got it the work has to start with yourself yeah, first absolutely. of all doesn't it thank you I think that's really important and thanks so much for coming to share your story and your work and your love about Manchester and we built this city as I say we've had a long list of requests for you <laughs> you know thanks for helping us to create a legacy I love the Dibby legacy that's a fantastic thing to aim for and thanks for sharing your story because it helps us to really celebrate what Greater Mancunians are all about so thanks Nathaniel my pleasure thanks for having me Nathaniel Hall built this city by speaking truth to power, by not seeking fame and fortune for fame and fortune's sake, and by leaving a Dibby legacy. On the next episode of We Built This City, you'll hear from someone who needs no other introduction. It's Rowetta. He couldn't take his eyes off me. I had to say to him, if you carry on, I'm going to tell your girlfriend, because he was doing it in the Hacienda. He was still looking at me when he went to the Hacienda afterwards. I'm now releasing interviews every other week, so that episode will be available on October the 7th. If you want to find out more about how Roland Dransfield can help you to drive your values and create relationships that build your business success, then head over to rdpr.co.uk. Or you can find us on Instagram at Roland Dransfield or Twitter at RDPR Tweets. Or feel free to give us a call at the office on the same number we've had for 25 years on 0161 236 1122. And in the meantime, don't forget to rate, review and follow We Built This City. If you're in the UK and you need to talk, the Samaritan's number is 116 123. That's 116 123. And that number is free from mobiles too. They're always there day or night.